it seems like all of us know somebody who's a little bit more spiritual than us that always says that God tells them stuff. Anybody know somebody that say, well, God told me that I should move to Florida. Sure, he told me to move to Hawaii. He just ain't provided. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, but people say with confidence, God told me. Well, one time God told me or I heard God say, and I'm, I, that confuses me. I Genuinely, I don't know what to do with that. I, I, I'm not calling you a liar. I just don't believe you. I know that's horrible to say. I know. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to discount your experience. I'm just saying I've never experienced that. That's not how God speaks to me at all. And so when people say God told me something, I'm like, um, oh, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, what what I, the cynic in me, when they say God told me to, and then they do something that doesn't work out, I'm like, hmm, apparently God screwed up, didn't he? Or maybe you didn't really hear from him, right? Like I, that's the cynic in me. Uh, but people will sometimes come up to me and they say, hey, God told me to tell you, and I don't like that at all. Anybody ever, anybody have somebody come up to them, you and tell you, God told me to say to you, raise your hand if you've done, right? Slap them in the name of Jesus. That is manipulation. That is what that is. If God tells you to say something to me, then just say something to me. Don't tell me that God told you because now all you're saying is you can't disagree with me because you're disagreeing with God. So I got a mentor who gave me a really good response to you. Not that you would do that. Of course you wouldn't, right? But that person who comes up to you and says, God told me to tell you, and then they say this, say, well, when God tells me, I'll do it, right? Thanks for the heads up. I'm waiting, right? So when he tells me also, then, then, then we'll do that. Some people come and say, God told me to tell you we should sing more hymns in church, right? I'm like, oh, when God tells, when God tells Joe Santiago, then we'll be singing more hymns, right? Right? Um, Anyway, I do. I, I, sometimes it can be manipulative, uh, but for me, it's just not my, my experience. So I, I think of two questions. One is, uh, does God speak to people like that, like, like, like talk to them? Um, and and I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I think the better question, and I think the answer to this second question fits everybody, is how, how does God tell us what we should do? Now, I know when somebody comes up and they say, God told me not to kill anybody, I'm like, yep, uh, I saw that. He's actually told everybody that. Uh, God told me not to cheat on my wife. You know what? He did. He told everybody not to cheat on their wife. It's when people go off script, when people start saying that God told them stuff that's not in the Bible, that I, I get a little bit nervous. But does God speak to us outside of the Bible? Does God give us direction? And, and if he did, what would that, what would that even look like? So if I just made you nervous with that question, just, just hang with me to, to see uh, where, where we're going. Uh, last week, we learned that Jesus gave his disciples a purpose. He gave them a passion to pursue with the rest of their life. And that was to go into all of the world and make disciples. A disciple is somebody who has admitted that they're broken on the inside and that they're going to give an account to God. And that somebody needs to pay for their sins uh, because God is a good judge and a good judge is always going to make sure that there's a punishment that fits the crime. And when you go stand before the county court judge in Dedham because you had a DUI, he doesn't care that you coach Little League. All he cares is whether or not you're innocent or guilty, right? Any judge that didn't care if you were innocent or guilty is not a good judge. So God's a better judge than any of them would be. When we stand before God, we're going to acknowledge that we're, we're guilty. And so our sins must be paid for. So those of us who have 
A disciple is somebody who acknowledges that Jesus' death and resurrection is the receipt that pays for my meal, right? He's the one that paid for my sins. And I'd, I would never ask him to do that. That'd be fresh. I, like, can you imagine asking, Jesus, you need to pay for mine too. But the fact that he volunteered, you'd be, you'd be crazy to ignore that, right? An act of generosity like that. And that's what a disciple is. It's somebody who admits, I've sinned. I've, sin, by the way, is just disobedience to God and selfishness towards others. And we've all sinned because we've all been a jerk. Raise your hand if you've been a jerk. Raise your hand, ever, if you've ever been a jerk. Raise your hand if you're sitting next to somebody who should have raised their hand on that first question. <laughs> all right. Everybody in here has sinned. Everybody has. We're all, we're all, and Jesus telling his disciples to go into all the world to make disciples, he didn't say go into all the world and start a religion. He said go into all of the world and help people turn from sin and be reconciled to me because God is more interested in people being reconciled to himself than even we are. Like, that's why he's done everything necessary to make this possible. And he says, now baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let them physically display what they've placed their faith in, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then teach them what it looks like to actually follow me. But he knew that they would be nervous about that, so he tells them something at the beginning and the end to help them not be so afraid. He starts that off by, by telling them, here's what you guys need to do. Here's what, here's what your life should really be about. He tells them, he says, I, I have a, I've been given authority in heaven and on earth. Basically, he starts off by saying, just so you guys know, I'm, I got you. I got you. So here's what I want you to do. I got you. Like there's nothing that's ever going to happen to you that I can't work for your good and my glory. Trust me. And then he ends it with, he ends it with, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this whole idea that the most important thing that they could do with their life is help other people be reconciled to God is true for you and me also. Because every single one of us on Judgment Day, when we stand before God, we're not going to give a rat's butt how much money we made in life. Think about it. You're standing before God, right? You, at that moment, you will not care how young you were when you retired. It will not matter to you how many properties you owned, how many businesses you sold, or how much paper you left for your kids to fight about. All you're going to care about in that moment is how many of the people that you love and care about are going to get to join you in the presence of God for all of eternity. And if you wasted the rest of this life chasing paper, I promise you on that day, you would wish to come back to this day and live the rest of your days different. And if you're wise out of consideration of that, you'll live differently now, right? Um, so he gives him that mission. And then he ends with, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And here's what's crazy. He said, and lo, or behold, or pay attention, and pay attention, I will be with you always until the end of the age. And then he ascended into heaven and left them. Anybody ever caught that before? Lo, I will be with you always. And then he left them. Read it. It's in Acts chapter 1. He ascends into heaven. And the Bible says the disciples stared up into heaven after he had gone. The Bible says for a long time. Because he just said, I'm not going to leave you. And then he leaves them. So they're like, surely he's coming right back. Like this is... <laughs> I, you heard that, right? Didn't he just say he's like not going to leave us? Then what the, what the freak is this, right? Like an angel has to come and go, hello, and snap them out of their stare 
and tell them to go into Jerusalem like Jesus said and wait. Right? Like an angel, hello, hey, hey, hey. You guys need to, like, let's go. Get busy. Get busy. Isn't that odd? Like, how can Jesus physically leave them and still keep his promise to be with them to the end of the age? How can I know what God wants me to do? Um, how do I experience? How can I spend more time with God? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So if you've got your Bible, go to John chapter 14. A few weeks ago, we talked about a dad. Before we read John chapter 14, we talked about a dad who had a son that was demon-possessed. Does anybody remember that at all? Anybody raise your hand if you remember that teaching? Uh, It's online if if you're interested, but there's a dad who has a son that's demon-possessed, and he brings his kid to the Jewish leaders, the rabbis and the rabbinical scholars, and they couldn't help the kid. So then he takes him to the disciples of Jesus, and they can't help his kid. So now he's losing hope in religion and everything, God and the whole bit. So then Jesus shows up before the dad has left, and Jesus said, all things are possible if you believe, and we talked about what Jesus did mean by that and what Jesus did not mean by that, and Jesus did not mean that Sean is going to be able to dunk a basketball at six foot one, 200 and none of your business pounds, and one fake hip and another fake hip coming in September. Hopefully by September, they'll invent a bionic one, so maybe I can dunk, so we'll see what happens, but uh, anyway... Um, but we talked about what that does mean and does not mean. So then the dad looked at, then Jesus looked at the dad and says, do you believe I can do this? And the dad gives her a brilliant answer because it's honest. And it actually matches most of my religious experience. And he, and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Or basically he goes, kinda. Like, do you believe I can do this? Kinda. Like, yeah, but no. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to answer that question. Yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. And then Jesus gives him an instruction. He says, well, go get your son. And then what does the dad do? He does what? He goes and gets his son. So did he trust Jesus or not? Yes or no? Yeah, like Jesus, like he knew that he had enough faith. Well, and here's how I know this, because Jesus actually healed him. So the guy gets done saying, I kind of believe. Jesus says, now if you believe, I can heal your kid. So do you believe? He goes, kind of. Then he heals the kid. So that was enough. And we know that it was enough because of what he did. So Jesus tells him, go get your kid. And he trusted Jesus enough to do what Jesus said, and that's faith. James talks about that. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about that faith isn't just believing in something. Like, I can believe. I believe I can fly. Anyway, anybody else think of that when I said that? Just three of us? Okay, I shouldn't have sung it then. Anyway, I I stopped it real quick. But um, I sung something about Jesus in there. But the, uh, um, oh, belief. Uh, belief is, is acknowledging that something is true. Uh, faith is different. Faith is trust. That's what it is. Uh, like I can, I can believe uh, as, a, as a little kid that my dad will, 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 can catch me if I jump off this ladder. But you know that I trust my dad when I actually do what? Jump off the ladder. So that's what faith is. Faith is that belief plus trust. It's do you love God enough to trust God enough to actually do what he says? Because that's faith. With that understanding of faith, we need to go to John chapter 14, and I'm going to start reading in verse 15 where it says, if you love me, obey my commandments, and they go together. If you love me, then you'll trust me. If you trust me, then you'll obey me. This is the the unpacking of faith, right? He says, if you love me and you trust me, then you obey me. These are the things I'm looking for. Do you love me and trust me? Uh, Because if you do, that's the condition on everything else he's about to say. So if you love me enough to trust me enough to obey me, Then here's what he says, verse 16. Then I will ask the Father, and he will give you uh, another advocate. 
uh, who will never leave you. Now, if you're raised in church, you know who the advocate is. If you, if you don't, uh, awesome, because you're about to find out. So Jesus says, for those who love me and obey me, these are the people that have placed their faith and trust in me, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send you someone. And this person isn't an assistant. Uh, this person is an advocate. And, and an advocate works on your behalf, but they don't do what you say. That's an assistant. Are you with me? How many of you guys are familiar with the term advocate? Raise your hand if you're familiar with that term. So an advocate, like you might have somebody in your family who's an advocate. They might not have that title or any official position, but this is the person who lovingly will say the hard thing to you that nobody else in the family is willing to talk to you about. Because that person is going to tell you what you need to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear, and you're going to receive it because you know they love you. Like, this is the person you will accept it from. I won't accept criticism from everybody, but there's some people who's earned the right to, to speak critically to me. And those people are saying things that I don't like, but I know I need to hear. That person is my advocate. If you've ever been like in a really unhealthy position and someone in your family set up an intervention, whoever set that up is your advocate. It might have made you mad. You might not have wanted it, but they loved you more than they needed you to like them. That person is your advocate. That person is going to do what is right and they're going to do what is best because they care, right? They work, they work on your behalf, but they don't do what you say. And Jesus used this word on purpose. He didn't say, I'm going to ask the Father to send you an assistant that whenever you push the button, he's going to come in and save the day. No, I'm going to send you an advocate who's going to do the right thing, even if it's not the thing that you wanted. And then he says... And when you get the advocate, he will never leave you. And that's important also. Once you get the advocate, you never are without the advocate. Ever, ever, ever again. You always have the advocate. He never, ever, ever, ever leaves. Jesus tells us in verse 17 who the advocate is. So this is brand new, by the way. Jesus is, this is the first time Jesus has his conversations with his disciples. And in this con con conversation, he's talking about leaving. And when he leaves them, he's going to be asking the Father, to, for those that love him and obey him, he's going to be sending them the advocate. The advocate's going to work on your behalf. He's going to do the right thing. He's always going to be, he loves you and cares, actually cares. And he's going to be working behind the scenes to do the right thing on your behalf. And he's never, ever, ever, ever going to leave you. And then he says in verse 17, by the way, he's the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Hebrews, this isn't the first time the Jewish disciples have heard of the Holy Spirit because they're Jewish. They know the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, and the Torah. Probably had the Torah memorized by the time they were seven years old, as most Hebrew boys did at the time. So they have the Torah memorized, and, and, and the Spirit of the Lord is how the Holy Spirit is referred to in the Hebrew Bible uh, all the time. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is in the Torah. The Spirit of the Lord is, uh, is in the books of history. Uh, it's in the book of wisdom. It's in the major and the minor prophets. Like the spirit of the Lord is all over the Hebrew scriptures. And so they know who the spirit of the Lord is. The spirit of the Lord is this, is this entity sent from God that will occasionally show up on somebody's life and empower them to do something they normally would not be able to do. So this isn't the first time they've ever heard of the spirit of the Lord, but they've never referred to him as the advocate before. So he's the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him, so it wouldn't even recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Now, this is brand new information. Because at no time in history had the Holy Spirit ever permanently moved into anybody. He would come upon somebody, but he had never been in anyone. 
So Jesus says, you know who the Spirit of the Lord is because he's been with you. You've experienced this. Jesus had taken 70 of his disciples and split them up into 35 different pairs of people and had sent them out around all of Israel to preach repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, turn from your sin to begin following Jesus and the Messiah, right? So, uh, and, they, and he said, and I'm giving you power and authority uh, to cast out demons and to, and to heal people from their sicknesses. So in every one of those circumstances, they had been in, they had felt the Holy Spirit come upon them to do something that normally they would never be able to do, but then the Holy Spirit leaves. He doesn't permanently become a part of anybody's life. And this had happened all throughout the Bible. You see, in fact, uh, one, two of the ones that I think is really cool is a dude named Bezalel and Aholiab. Uh, who's ever heard of Bezalel? Anybody ever hear of Bezalel? A few people. And Aholiab? Aholiab, they're not, uh, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, they're not, they're not, they're not priests, uh, they're not temple workers. They're not prophets. Uh, they're not famous or nobody's heroes uh, in the Bible. Like they're not like a super religious heroes or anything in the Bible. What they were is they were tradesmen. That's what they were. They were the guys that were in like the union type of a thing. And Bezalel was a craftsman. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit came upon him. He's the guy who hand carved the Ark of the Covenant, Bezalel. And the Bible says that God's Holy Spirit came upon him as he carved, like hand carved, the Ark of the, you know, from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then he put the, the covering on it. You know, with the angels that are covering the mercy seat, like the angels are, are covering it. He's the one that carved all of that. And then they had an incense burner. He carved that. Uh, they had a, uh, a lamp, uh, a candlestick and a lamp uh, with oil for, for light. He carved all of that. A Holiab is a seamstress, and he's the one that made the curtains that go around the tabernacle. Uh, that created the Holy of Holies that only the high priest was allowed to go into. So Aholiab and Bezalel were the only like commoners, like non-high priests that ever saw this. Like they, and the Holy Spirit had come upon them and, um, to supernaturally empower them to do this really, really cool thing. Uh, by the way, uh, in July, uh, Chris, Chris Ballinger lives 10 hours away from Ulaanbaatar, and he's our missionary there. And uh, we're taking a trip out there and we need a couple of electricians and a plumber to go with us. So if you are an electrician or a plumber, and in July, want to help us go to Mongolia for nine days, and Holy Spirit is going to turn you into your own little Bezalel. Let's go, baby, right? So if you're an electrician or a plumber, you are Bezalel and Aholiab. And in July, we're going to use your, your trade craft in the name of Jesus to help get this coffee shop off the ground so they can get this church started. Uh, and then what he does is he hands the coffee shop off to the Mongolian pastor to provide for his family while he pastors this church, and then he moves to a new town and starts all over again. So you'll be the one that helps get that coffee shop off the ground. Anyway, if you're interested in that, come see me. Uh, actually, the whole sermon is just for that announcement. Now we are done. Holy Spirit came upon Saul, King Saul. Holy Spirit came upon King David. Holy Spirit came upon uh, Gideon. In the Bible, in Samson, who, by the way, was a man of faith, but was not a man of moral character. And the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he picked up the donk, the, 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 the um, jawbone, thank you, the jawbone of a donkey, and, um, right? And then he picked up the jawbone of a, to beat some, is what he did, yeah. And the Holy Spirit had come upon him to do that. And then the Holy Spirit came upon Elijah. Holy Spirit came upon Elisha. And all of these people in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Spirit of the Lord came upon, and then they left. Like, truthfully, what you and I experience, if you're a follower of Jesus, not everybody here is. And we understand that. And by the way, I'm glad everybody is here, because if you're asking questions, this is the best place to ask those questions. Um, but once God becomes a part of your life, according to Jesus, he never leaves. And nobody in the Old Testament knows what that's like. They would only briefly sense 
what I've taken for granted since I was nine. Like, I don't know what it feels like to not have God a part of my life because I, I committed to faith in Jesus when I was a nine-year-old, asked Jesus to forgive me and save me, and he did. And I'm a little bit ahead of myself, but, but back to the story. Um, so they, but Jesus says, you've experienced him with you, but later he's actually going to be in you. Like physically, the presence of God is going to be in you. Then he says in verse 18, No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. And soon the world will no longer see me, but you'll see me. Since I live, you will also live. When I am raised to life again, that's when all this is going to happen, is after the resurrection. After the resurrection, that's the later. The later. After the resurrection, uh, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. What the heck does that mean? How is he going to do this? How is... Jesus in the Father, the Father is in Jesus, I am in God, and God is in me. How, how, is, this, how is this possible? It's possible because the Spirit, the Advocate, who was with them and later would be in them, it's because the presence of God is the Spirit, and the Spirit of God will be in you, therefore you will be in God, and He is now in you. The Spirit is the omnipresent, is the big word, the omnipresence of God. It's why David had said, if I go to the highest mountain, you are there. It's not that God left his throne in heaven to go sit on the highest mountain before David got there. I got to hurry up and go sit on the highest mountain because David's on his way up. And I need him to write that if he goes to the highest mountain, I'm going to be there. Because the Spirit of God is there. He said, if I go into the lowest parts of the, of, the, of, of the earth, if I go to the bottom of the ocean, if I go to the place of the dead, he says, there you are. Because he's the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God isn't new. In fact, he shows up in the very first chapter of the Bible. In the very first three verses, you get God, you have his spirit, and you have his word, his voice. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everybody's heard of that verse, religious or not. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, and the earth was empty. It was void and without form. And darkness covered the face of the deep. And the Holy Spirit moved upon the face of the waters. Now, that's how I have it memorized. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. What does that mean? The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. I have no idea, but I'd like this. Like, in, like when I read the Bible, I picture it in my head. And that's, it, it comes alive when I do that. So when I picture the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, I'm picturing like, like a stealth bomber flying at like six feet right off the ocean. Like just like, just like a Mach 1. Just like super fast. The water's like. Anybody else? Is it just me? Like, that's how I picture verse 2 of the Bible. Like, the whole second verse in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit is just like, just like flying, like, and then like, there's like, there's like water spray, right? Just like flying up behind them. You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm not crazy. And then verse 3 says, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. You guys are on top of it. This is amazing. I didn't even tell them this was going to be in the notes. Right? But in the beginning was, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God, it says in verse 2. I don't know if you guys have that up there. You, what? He exists in the beginning with God. Keep going. How far do you guys go? God created everything through him, through who? Through the word. And nothing was created except through him. Through who? The word. The word is with God and the word was God. I can be with Billy Jane, but I can't be with Billy Jane and be Billy Jane. So how can the word of God be with God and be God? I don't know. That's Christians invented a word for this. That there is God who has a spirit, who has a word. John chapter 1, verse 14. Do you guys have that one? I'll be impressed. Oh my gosh! You guys are killing it. So the word, the word of God, let there be light. That word that was with God and is God became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. What's his name? That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the let there be light. That's who Jesus is, become flesh. So Christians invented a word to describe this idea. What's the word that we invented? The Trinity. The word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. But the idea that there is one God that exists plurally in some way is in chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says, Then God, singular, said, Let us, plural, Make man in our plural image. What? Go to any Jewish synagogue, Jewish temple, and grab one of their Bibles, open it up, and go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It reads exactly like that. So then I went to a Jewish commentary, somebody who does not believe in Jesus, and I wanted to read, how do they explain Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? And so in the, Jew the Jewish theologians will say, that this is not a transcribing error. This is exactly how Moses wrote it, and we don't know why he did this. And this is the thing that our Jewish and our Muslim friends really have a hard time with. In fact, I had a Jewish lady say to me in my office, she said, Christians don't make any sense. And I said, do tell. <laughs> and said, you guys are the only ones that say there is one God who is three gods, and that doesn't make any sense. Tell me where else, anywhere in the world, one is three and three is one. And I gotcha. Ready? All of everything is a trinity of trinities. And I got this from somebody else. I heard a debate between a Christian and an atheist. In fact, if you just go to YouTube and search for a trinity of trinities, you'll probably find the same debate I found. And this guy said this, a guy much smarter than me, and when he said it, I was like, light bulbs were popping on everywhere. He said, everything is a trinity. Time, space, and matter. Everything in existence is either time, space, or matter. He says, all three of those things are also trinities in and of themselves. So time, the past, the present, and the future. Which one of those is time? Each one of them. The past, is that time, yes or no? Is the present time? Is the future time? Each one of them are time. But there's still only one thing. What is it? It's one thing. It's time. It exists in three distinct attributes. Past, present, and future. Space. It's one thing. It's space. It's dimension. What is it? It's height. It's width and it's, and it's depth. Well, which one is spatial? Height, width, or depth? All of them. But there's only one thing. What is it? It's space. Matter. Everything physical in the universe is either solid, liquid, or vapor. Well, is solid matter? Yes or no? Is liquid matter? And is vapor matter? Yes. So which one of them is matter? 
all of them. And if you take away any one of them, it stops being what it was. But there's one thing, matter, that exists in three parts. There's one thing, time, exists in three parts. There's one thing, space, that exists in three parts. There's one thing, God, who exists in three. Everything is a reflection of the character and nature of the identity of God. Everything is. I, I wish I had that. You ever like get done with a conversation and you're in your car and you're like, oh, dang it, that's what I should have said. You want to come, hey, can you come ask me that question again? Because I got a good answer. That's how I felt after that lady left. Uh, Jesus replied, verse 23, all who love me will do what I say. My father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. How? How is God going to make his home with each person? Through who? through the Spirit, through the Advocate, who then was with them, but later after the resurrection would be in them. Verse 24, anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And that person doesn't have the Spirit. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. I'm telling you these things now while I am with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything that I have told you. So the advocate is the Holy Spirit who works in me but does not work for me. He's not my assistant. He's not my Santa Claus. Not my tooth fairy. Not my genie in a bottle. I can just conjure up whenever I need a little miracle. But then you get back in your bottle when I want to keep doing a little something, something. Right? So he works for me Excuse me, he works in me, but does not work for me. And he does in me what God the Father wants him to do. And he teaches us what God wants and reminds us of what he said. Now, this idea that Jesus was going to leave, but he was going to send the advocate. Two chapters later, Jesus brings it up again because all they're focusing, like they're not focusing on what he wants them to focus on. All they're thinking about is, oh, you're going to leave us? You're going to leave us? You're gonna, when are you going to leave us? When are you going to leave us? So two chapters later in John chapter 16, he brings it up again. He says in verse 5 of John chapter 16, he said, But now I am going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is even asking where I'm going. Instead, you're just grieving because of what I already told you, that I was going to be leaving you. But I already told you that I was going to die, but I was going to raise on the third day, and then after the resurrection, I'm going to be sending the advocate, and then I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to be leaving you because I will always be in you because you'll have the Holy Spirit who is with you now, but after the resurrection, you'll have the ability for him to actually be in you. And that's a huge advantage. And that's what he says, verse seven. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. But if I do go away, then I get to send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He will convict the world of sin and of God's judgment, excuse me, of God's righteousness, and that there's a coming judgment. In all people groups throughout all history have all had, whatever religions they made up, they had the idea that there was a God, that there's a right and a wrong, that there's consequences for doing wrong. Romans chapter 1 echoes that also. So as long as God's presence was in the world in the person of Jesus, God's physical presence was limited to the presence of Jesus. So if you were in Galilee, but Jesus in Jerusalem, and you wanted to know what God had to say about something, you'd have to go down to Jerusalem and talk to Jesus. And if you weren't in the presence of Jesus, you weren't in the presence of God right? So Jesus says, but if I leave, then I get to send the Holy Spirit, who in the past has been with you occasionally, but will be in you from now on. It's a huge advantage because now you have 24-7 access to God for the rest of your life, everywhere you go, and every day, 
forever. You will never not be in the presence of God. There's a huge advantage to you. So what we have right now, the Old Testament prophets would have dreamed of, but never got to experience. There's three things that we know about the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to wrap up our time with. Three things we know about the Holy Spirit. Number one, he's the presence of God in me. Number two, he's the gift of God for me. And number three, he's the work of God through me. As we've just seen, the Spirit of God in you is the presence of God himself in you. And there was a time when, like, uh, you received the Holy Spirit at a separate time from when you were saved from sin. It's true with the disciples. They had all placed their faith in Jesus. How do we know? Because they obeyed what he said. They loved God enough to trust God enough to obey God. But they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. That didn't happen until Acts chapter 1 and 2 when they received the Holy Spirit. Then there, you read the first nine chapters of Acts, and people would receive the Holy Spirit when somebody, after they had already gotten saved, somebody would lay hands on them, they would receive the Holy Spirit. Until Acts chapter 10, verse 44. In Acts chapter 10, verse 44, everything changes. Because God had told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 that I'm looking for a family through whom I can rescue the entire world. I'm also looking for a family who will be an example of what it looks like to live under my authority. But through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, as his descendants developed a national identity and an ethnic identity of their own as Jewish people, then the Jewish prophets started referring to the one through whom the rest of the world would be rescued that God had spoken to Abraham about as he said that he will be a light to the Gentiles. So the Hebrew prophets were always talking about he'll be a light to the Gentiles, that when the Messiah shows up, the Jews and Gentiles will both have equal access to God. But in the first nine chapters, the only people who get access to God are Jews. So they hadn't actually done yet what God had said would happen all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. It's that the Gentiles would get the light too. So Peter is in Joppa, and God gives him a dream that he needs to go speak to a man named Cornelius, who's non-Jewish. And that was very difficult for a Jewish person to do, especially if they were religious. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it was in Joppa. There's only, when God told Peter to go preach to Cornelius, a Jewish person, this is only the second time where a Jewish man of God was sent to preach to Gentiles. The first time it was Jonah, and he didn't want anything to do with that. There's a whole story about it. And so Jonah goes to Joppa not to tell the Gentiles. So it's not a coincidence that Peter was where when God told him to go do it. Joppa. Where his people had rebelled against the idea of sharing the good news with Gentiles, God brings it back full circles and undoes that mistake with Peter in that same town. It's in Joppa when he says, go do it. And Peter does it. And in the middle of Peter's sermon, the Bible says that these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, they must have, while he's still preaching, they placed their faith and trust in Jesus' death and resurrection to pay for their sins because they were filled with the Holy Spirit in the middle of the sermon. And from then on, from then on, everybody received the Holy Spirit the moment they were saved. So what does it mean Peter receives the Holy Spirit and then later on it says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit did this. Or you'll read the rest of the book of Acts. Then this person who is already has the Holy Spirit, but the Bible say, then this person filled with the Holy Spirit does something else. What, is that? what does that mean? And I, and I got this illustration from somebody that I stole and I don't remember it from. It was a good idea. 
if this is me, all right, uh, I have this balloon. What does it have inside of it? What does it have inside of it? It has air. How much of it is air? All of it is air. This is not a trick question. You guys are like, I don't know. Is it helium? No. Somebody was thinking that, right? Okay. It's 100% air. It is 100% filled with air. Yes or no? Okay. Yes. But what I can do is I can increase its capacity for air. Is that about the same? Is that about the same? Yes or no? This is Sean most days. But every once in a while, it doesn't happen a lot, but every once in a while, Sean is filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that Sean normally is not. I just God increases my capacity to participate in what he's trying to do in the world. I'll give you an example. Uh, when, before Billy Jane and I were married, uh, we, were, we were in a fight, and we, we almost broke up. And it was uh, after curfew. I went to a Christian college, so they had a curfew. They would lock the doors at midnight, but I knew how to break out. So I broke out of that prison, and uh, we, we, bro- we, we, I was, we didn't know if we were going to make it, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I was, uh, whatever. Anyway, I'm a kid, and we're, we're dating. We're not married. We're dating, but I feel like we're going to break up. So I go for a walk, and I'm crying, and I'm angry, and then it starts raining. Of course it does. It's the perfect 1980s movie scene, right? Sean Sears is played by John Cusack. Got a boombox all by myself. Don't wanna be. And the rain is coming down. I wish she could see me crying right now because she would change her mind. She would see what she's doing to me. Right? That's the thing. Uh, and I'm in our. Then there's a train yard near our college because it's in a nice neighborhood. Um. Anyway, so there's a there's a catwalk over the train yard, and uh, it's not lit, as is as it is, and so. I start to go up the stairs, and I see uh, on, the, on, the, on the crosswalk that there's a, a sketchy dude. You know what a sketchy dude looks like. You go down an alley, and you see like a lit cigarette at the end of the alley. You're like, I'm going down a different alley. <laughs> Even dudes who can handle themselves, there's sometimes you're like, I, I'm just not in the mood today. You know what I mean? Like, you could probably beat his butt, but you're like, I just don't feel like getting cut, right? So I'm going to go down a different alley. So I'm walking on every day of my life. I would have turned around and walked away. Every day of my life, I would have turned around and walked away. But in that moment, there was something in me that wouldn't let me not go up those stairs. Right? So then Sean, filled with the Holy Spirit, walked up to the dude and said, how are you doing? And found out after talking with him for three hours that he was waiting on the next train to commit suicide. Talked him down with a pack of Marlboros. Then Sean, filled with the Holy Spirit, bought a pack of Marlboros. Right? Like that was one of those moments. Just every once in a while, And when that moment happens, it's going to scare the living crap out of you. Then Sean, filled with the Holy Spirit, walks up to the dude who might stab him and just says, hey, what's up? Right? Like that's, it's, that's, I think what that, that means. Then you, like just a few times in your life, you did, it's something you just, but you could not do this thing. And then you did it and you're like, holy cow, that was amazing. Can't believe I just got to be a part of that. Right? That's, I think, what that means. The second thing is that the Holy Spirit is the gift of God for me. The verse we just read a minute ago says that his job is to do three things. Convince those outside of faith that they've committed sin. And those inside of faith. He convicts the world of sin is what he does. He convinces them of God's righteousness, and he converts the repentant in preparation for God's judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul said, 
And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. How do you bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit? Because if God's Holy Spirit is in you, Jesus already said, the advocate will never leave you, which means you took the presence of God with you every time you ever did that thing. That's why he says, don't bring sorrow to the Spirit of God by the way you live. Because every time you did that, God never left you when you did it. You took God with you into that sin. He didn't leave. You know how you prayed and asked God to forgive you a thousand times and I'll never do it again? And then you did it again? And then you said to yourself, I'm not even gonna ask for forgiveness because I know I'm gonna do it again. But then something in you wouldn't let you not ask God for forgiveness? You know what I'm talking about? That's the Spirit of God. Because he does in you what God wants, not what you want. He works in you. He doesn't work for you. So he's the one that's constantly, I don't care if you're going to do it again. You need to go talk to God right now. But I'm going to do it again anyway, so I'm not going to go talk to God right now. Right? That thing in you that won't let you walk away. You know what I'm talking about? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? That thing in you that won't let you not believe, no matter how many atheist YouTube videos you watch. Right? That's the Spirit of God in you. He's the gift of God for me is what he is. And finally, he's the work of God through me. The work of God through me, uh, through his Holy Spirit, doesn't stop on the day that I was adopted into the household of faith. Now he gives me boldness to share my faith. There are times when I feel like God's talking to me. Not talking, I've never heard God talk to me, but God's pushing me. Like it feels like a thought in my head that's to do something that I don't want to do. And it's usually some act of generosity or selflessness or sacrifice that I'm not in the mood for right now, right? Like you're hanging out, talking to your next door neighbor, and the idea of bringing up God is like in your head, and you're like, mention something that you like, ask them if they go to church anywhere or like or it's Easter, just you got the invite card in your back pocket, and like you're trying to carry on a normal conversation. Meanwhile, there's thoughts popping into your head. Talk to him about God. Talk to him about God. Talk to him about God. And you're like pushing it back. Your yard looks great. Your yard looks great. When are you going to paint your garage? <laughs> right? And you just keep pushing it back. Anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. The reason why you should do that is there are other times you're talking to your neighbor and the idea of talking to them about God never pops into your head. Why? Because God hadn't prepared them to hear what you had to say. Then he has prepared them now. Open your mouth. Right? Like when God is pushing on you and that thought is creeping in, you have to respond to that. How do you know it's God? Because it's probably not what you wanted to do. It doesn't come natural. It's not this. It's this. Right? And the more often you do this, the more often you get to do this. He gives us the ability to understand the Bible when we're reading it, to resist temptation gives us a unique contribution to the kingdom of God through our local church. I've got verses for all of these. And it gives us the desire to obey God. This is, this is one, of, I want you to read this verse, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Some of you guys have talked about this. Like there's stuff that you used to do and you never felt nothing about it. And now that you've become a devoted follower of Jesus, now you do that and you're like, crap, I don't want to do that anymore. You might still be drawn to it or tempted to do it, but as soon as you did it, you didn't want to and you wished you hadn't. Like, that's the spirit warring against your flesh, right? Like, there's that, that sexual part of you or that selfish, prideful, egotistical part of you that wants to do that, but then there's that other side of you that's brand new in your life, 
And you're like, I don't really, like, I know I'm going to regret this because I, it doesn't fit. And the problem is it doesn't fit who you are now because God's Holy Spirit is there, right? That's his job. This is what he does. He's the one working in you. And some of you guys, you're, you're resisting turning from sin to begin following Jesus because you're afraid you're going to have to give up stuff that you don't want to give up. You're afraid you're going to have to start doing stuff that you don't want to do. Forget all that. Just repent of your sins and call on Jesus to forgive you and to save you. And what you're going to find out is that the Holy Spirit's going to change what you want. So after you're a follower of Jesus, just start doing the stuff that your spirit is making you want to do, and you're going to be fine. That's what he does. It's kind of like, we'll, we'll get people saved, and we'll baptize them all, and we'll let the Holy Spirit sort them out. That's what ends up happening, is God starts changing your want-tos. Now you're not wanting to sleep with them. Like, you, you might still slip up, but you feel, you, you're feeling something now about that that you never felt before. What's the difference? God's Holy Spirit giving you the desire to do what you should do and not do what you shouldn't do anymore. And then he gives you the power, the actual ability to do the things that please God. And that's how you become more and more like Jesus from the inside out. So when we say that God begins to transform you the inside out, from the inside out, that's what we're talking about, is that he starts changing your want-tos. And then it's not a problem because it's what you want to do now, is to be more like him. There are three ways that the Holy Spirit will lead me to do what God wants me to do. The Word of God, the counsel of other godly Christians, and prompting towards selflessness and generosity. That's how he tells us what to do. Through the Bible, through the counsel of other Christians, and through promptings by his Holy Spirit. That whole thing of like, I can't not do this. Like, I, I feel like I have to do this. That's, that's how he le leads us. Two things the Holy Spirit will never do. The Holy Spirit will never lead you contrary to the Word of God. I had a guy one time, one time tell me that he'd been praying about it, and he knew that God told him it was okay for him to leave his wife and kids. I said, you're a freaking liar, and then I hid behind Ken. Because <laughs> Ken carries. Right? He's <laughs> you're a liar because God's Holy Spirit will never tell you to disobey God. Ever, 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 ever. The other thing the Holy Spirit will never do is tempt you to sin. Two things he will never do. So if my kids, when my kids ask me how to know what God wants them to do, so I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to share with you what I tell them. First thing I want you to do is I want you to pray and ask God if there's any unconfessed sin. Some of you guys are asking God to tell you step two. when you've, He's already told you step one and you said no. God's not going to tell you what step two is when he already told you what step one is and you told him to kiss off. Right? Why would he give you more information to rebel against? So the first thing you need to do is, am I already obedient to God's Spirit with what I know right now? Because I don't know that God will tell you anything else other than what He's already told you that you're resisting Him on. He's going to keep pushing on this first. So you get that taken, whatever that is, fix that, and then He might tell you number two. But He ain't going to tell you number two until you start doing number one. Whatever number, I have no idea what it is, but whatever it is, Get that fixed first. And then I'll ask my kids, what does the Bible say? The Bible doesn't say anything about college. All right. Like, let's say that that's the thing. And I'll say, all right, what did Taylor and Nicole say? Taylor and Nicole are their, their spiritual mentors. They're youth pastors. What did, what did Bert and Lindsay say? What did Joshua say? What did Craig say? Right? What did Michael Delaney say? What did Drew and Jessica say? 
Like, who are your spiritual mentors? What are they telling you? Because when I get two mentors to tell me the same thing and they haven't talked to each other, I don't even have to think about it anymore. I, I, I pull the trigger, right? If I can seek counsel from people that are spiritually farther ahead in their journey than me and they haven't talked to each other and they're giving me the exact same advice, right? Um, as long as it ain't contradicting scripture, I can trust it. Wisdom and safety, Proverbs says. Wisdom is found in the multitude of counselors. Safety is found in the multitude of counselors. Seek counsel. Don't make any big moves until first, you check, make sure there's no one confessed sin. You've taken care of step one. Two, what does the Bible say? Three, what do your mentors say? What do other godly people say? And then last, what do you want to do? Do that. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he gives you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean he grants your wishes. It means that he actually puts the desires in your heart that you have. If you delight yourself in the Lord, he gives you desires in your heart. So my wife and I, when we were right with God, we both felt like we wanted to move to Boston. So we sold our house, and we felt like this is what God wanted us to do. God didn't tell me to sell my house. And then three breakdowns later in a U-Haul, because I should have rented a Penske, I told Billy Jane on the side of the road, I'm still only 80% sure we did the right thing. And she said, if we're doing the wrong thing, at least we did the wrong thing for the right reason. I think God can work with that. Right? So if your heart is clean, and your mentors, like there's nothing in the if your heart is clean, right? Dear God, is there any unconfessed sin in my heart? No. Where's the scripture says? About selling my house and moving to Boston? Nothing. What do my mentors say? They're all in agreement. Pull the trigger. If, we're, if God blesses me, it'll be because of the condition of my heart, not the location of my butt. Yes or no? Would God have blessed us if we stayed in Denver? Yes, because our heart was right. Would God bless us if we moved to Boston? Yes or no? Yes, because our heart's right. So if you're praying about moving to Naples... Don't. You need to stay in Boston. God, God told me to tell you that. So if you're far from God, you don't have to be anymore. If you don't want to be far from God, then I got good news for you. God's already speaking to you through his Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 6, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. You can't get right with God anytime. You can only get right with God when you want to. And Jesus said, you'll never want to until, the Holy, until God draws you. How does God draw you? Through his Holy Spirit. I've seen this at work. Like some of you guys right now, you know you need to deal with stuff with God. And others of you just waiting for me to shut up so you can leave. What's the difference? It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my sermon. It has everything to do with who the Holy Spirit's talking to and who he's not talking to. Some of you, you want to get right with God. And that feeling that you have about wanting to get right with God, you need to remember this because that's what it feels like for God to talk to you. See, it's not a voice, is it? It's a thought that you need to do this that doesn't match the normal thoughts that you have. That's God. That's God speaking to you. That's God's Holy Spirit going, hey, you need to come home now. That's why you want this. And there's others of you who don't want it at all. And it's only because God's Holy Spirit isn't tapping you. And I'm sorry. I can't make him do anything. Romans chapter 1 says that God will tap everybody's shoulder at least once, but nobody's guaranteed more than once. That's why it's a scary thing to feel God tapping you on his shoulder and for you to tell him to get lost because you don't know that he'll ever tap again. You can only get right with God when you want to, and you'll only want to when his Holy Spirit is drawing you. And if you need to take business, take care of business with God, then thank him for speaking to you. 
and take it, get right with God. Do it. This is your chance. If you would bow your head with me, talk to him. If you're distant from God and you don't want to be anymore, tell him that. Dear God, I don't want to be distant from you anymore. I want you to give me the advocate. I want your presence in my life for the rest of my life. Tell him. I accept your death and resurrection as the only payment for my sin. I don't want to pay for my sin for all of eternity, and I'm thankful you did. I never would have asked you to, but since you volunteered, I'd be crazy to ignore it. God, take away my sin. Forgive me for all of it, and help me to trust you enough to obey you with the rest of my life. Make that your prayer. God, I trust you. I'm giving you my heart, my life. I'm yours. If you're already a follower of Jesus, what act of obedience have you been resisting? What act of disobedience have you refused to let go of? What big decision are you facing right now? God, speak to me. Speak to me through the scriptures. Speak to me through the counsel of other godly Christians. Prompt me. Give me this irresistible urge for whatever it is you want me to do next. This is our prayer. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, Amen.